Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm recording this in New York. We're going to take you back in time and across the country to Los Angeles, where we hosted the Code Media Conference. Talked about media and technology and the streaming wars and where everything is going. Um, We're going to bring you one of those conversations right now. Please welcome the CEO, I hope I get his title right, of Condé Nast, Roger Lynch. Thank you, Peter. Nice to see you. Good to see you. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Vox Media, where I work, often described itself as the digital Condé Nast. I've heard that, but uh, I I don't know if you stopped that. You guys are a magazine company now, too. We are now a magazine publisher as well. How's that business? Should we be in the magazine business? You know, I I heard you introduce me as uh, being in the magazine business, and actually, magazines are a minority of our revenue. What we're really in is the content business, and magazines are one of the ways that our content creators express the content, but. Video and digital and events and all kinds of other things are actually the majority of the revenue. So I met, well, I've met you before, but I talked to you about six months ago right after you got the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been most recently running Pandora. Mm-hmm. I went and met you at the fancy Condé Nast office in the World Trade Center. Yes. Views. I had a bunch of questions. We moved over. out of that office, by the way. Not the World Trade Center. You're still there. The one you met me in, which was, to me, a bit depressing. Why was it depressing? Because it was, it, it, uh, so at Pandora, I literally sat on the floor at a desk next to everybody else. And I get to Condé Nast and they take me to my office and it's like, go through this reception, into this reception over here. And you sit in the office and there's nobody around. And so it was a real culture shock for me. So we moved out of that floor and to another floor where it's much more open and glass and you can actually see people and interact with them instead of feel like you're Not, not to be somewhere. too catty, but was that also a money-saving move? No. 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 Well, I mean, it will save money, yeah. But it was, to me, it was more of a... Um, you know, we're doing a big culture shift, and it's part of it. Yeah, I want to ask you about the culture shift. So yeah. I met you six months ago. We talked about what you were going to do, and pretty much every time I asked you, you said, I don't know. Uh, I just got here. Um, I'm doing a listing tour. I'm going to figure it out. I think I was two or three weeks into the job. Yeah. So. so have you figured it out? <laughs> I'm figuring it out, yeah. You want to start with the culture or the business first? You know, they're, they're uh, intertwined, really. I see them as uh, uh, inextricably intertwined. And, you know, the challenge for me when I was coming out, the publishing side of, uh, of our business is new for me. You know, everything I've done before was much more about digital media. And um, so there's a lot I had to learn on that. But also, you know, the history of Condé Nast, for those of you who may not know, is that there's a long history. You know, actually, our oldest title goes back to, you want to take a guess? 18-something? 1709. Whoa, what's that? Tatler in the UK, 1709. So... There is a lot of history. And, uh, you know, that history is intertwined into culture and our technology stack and how we approach business and think about it. And Condé Nast, also in the history, is the international business was a separate company with a separate CEO. Even though it was owned by the same group, um, they were almost, really, they were competitors. They saw each other as competitors. And so I'm the first CEO to actually run a combined business. And so one of the first things I had to 
figure out is what does it mean to combine these businesses and what does it mean to be a global company? And so I, was on the, I went on the listening tour that you and I talked about. And at the end of that, we announced a new structure for the business, and we've been integrating now the international business and along with the U.S. business. And so it's essentially like you've bought a new company and you're merging it together. It, it, it really is for for those of you who've who've done merger integration before. Other than having to negotiate the terms of the merger, everything else is a merger integration. You know, who gets this job? Who doesn't? What tech stack? What you know, what are you gonna do with email? How you, all of that stuff. We're, we're uh, we're going through right now. So, Conde Nast is famous for many things, and within the media industry, it's famous for, it's this sort of confederation of, of magazine editors. Really, mm-hmm. there used to be many more of these big famous names, now there's a handful, David Remnick, Anna Wintour, and these people own their empires, they sort of happen to work for Conde Nast, and it's very hard for whoever's running Conde Nast to say, this is the new direction. I um, quite see it that way. Yeah. Is that not true anymore, or you're making it not true? Um, I, I think it's a, to, to be fair, it's a little of both. I think, you know, Condé Nast has gone through a lot. You know, just, if you look at the magazine side of the business, there's two things that really stand out. One is, you know, people think, oh, well, you know, people aren't reading magazines, or younger people aren't reading magazines. That's actually not true. You know, circulation for us globally is about flat, right? I think it's actually down 1% year over year. So a slight decline, but not much. Subscriptions are growing, like for the New Yorker, we're having really good growth in subscription, and it's young people who are buying the subscriptions. What has happened is ad dollars have shifted away from print into digital and video and social media and things like that. And so we're benefiting from that uh, in those categories, and we're losing it, you know, on... on and the ad, but the ad dollars don't shift one-to-one, right? Everyone here knows that, you know, your, they, dig, your analog dollar becomes a digital quarter... Well, it's dime, because, penny. you know, our friends at Google and Facebook take most of it. Uh-huh. And most of that growth that happens in digital goes to them. And so there's some left over for us and companies like yours, but not quite enough left over. Let's do a little more uh, just stage setting, right? So reportedly you guys lost know, $120 million last year. You can blink. Uh, there's an that, that was reported, but that, okay. that was not accurate. Okay. It's a big number, whatever it is. Uh, New York Magazine, a fine magazine, did a profile of you guys and had a stunning line there about you lost more money in 2017 than you made in profit in 2003. Um, and if you think about it, that sort of makes sense. And again, I think most people in this room sort of understand what happens to an analog company. But this is a company that was sort of both an incredibly powerful financial, well, it was an incredibly powerful magazine business, uh, lots of cultural impact, and it has been in some stage of decline for a while. Family-owned business, owned by the new houses. When this job comes to you, what is the pitch that makes you want to join an industry you've never done before and in a, in a, in yeah. a, magazine, in a business that is declining? Um, first of all, let me just level set one thing. When you say in decline, print advertising revenue has been in decline. That is a true statement. If you look at overall revenue, it is not in decline. And if you look at what is most important to me, which is our relevance to consumers and engagements with consumers. You mean you do skip profits. It's, it's growing fast, right? So when, when, when they approached me about this, um, it was, there was, you know, we were getting ready to close the deal to sell Pandora. And it just happened that there were a number of companies looking for CEOs all at the same time. So there were four that I was talking to and it had very advanced stages on. Three of them were, I would consider, much more in my wheelhouse, and this one much farther outside of my wheelhouse. But I found myself, like, in, you know, somewhere in California, somewhere in New York, I'm flying back and forth uh, with all of this, and I just found myself sitting on the plane, always going back to the materials on Condé Nast. So there was something that really drew me to it. 
And, um, and I think it was one that I really, I like tough problems. I like solving tough problems. And this was a really interesting one to solve. Two, when I was doing my due diligence, one of the things I really wanted to understand, you know, there's the financial side, but what was more important to me actually was what's happening with consumers, uh, with our brands. And as I got through that data, I realized our engagement with consumers is growing. It's growing fast globally. So then it became a strategic problem. Okay, well, I've got to merge these businesses and what's the right revenue model for us with all this engagement we have with consumers? And that felt like a solvable problem. If it had been the opposite where, gee, you know, engagement with consumers was in decline, that would have been in the too hard category. But it's not, it's actually the opposite of that. So people like what you make, your job is figuring out how to structure the business so you can be profitable, because you're not profitable now. Um, well, I, look, I'm not gonna comment on profits. It's one of the advantages of not running a public company is I don't have to talk about that stuff. But uh, what I would say is this, our business is in transition. And therefore, when you're an industry that's in transition, the only certain mistake you can make is to not change. That's a certain mistake. Every other thing you do might be a mistake, but it might not. But if you don't change, that's a certain mistake. So we'll be making a lot of changes. And part of it is really, we have areas that are growing very nicely for us. Asia as a region is growing very nicely. China is a very important market for us. We have business lines that are growing very fast. Video is our fastest growing business line. It is growing very, very fast. We're the largest premium publisher on YouTube today. And so it, it is about making sure that we have our resources aligned with where our growth is, but also becoming a much more integrated business. So within Condé Nast previously, video was sort of this business over here that existed on its own, and the magazines and digital were over here. And in fact, the way I look at it is, you know, at the center of our business are content creators, and which are predominantly our editorial teams. And the video is one way, a storytelling mechanism for us to use to reach our audiences. So we get much more alignment on that. And we have that, like some of our brands, like Bon Appetit, I think is, is probably the best example of that, where it has um, a strong and growing magazine business, both ad revenue, subscription, very strong growth in digital, and it's killing it in video and events. I mean, that's a title that whatever we do is, it, you know, it sells out on that. And that, because it's aligned, they have alignment. Adam Rappaport is the editor of Bon Appetit, is completely aligned with the video producers that uh, work for Condé Nast Entertainment, and, uh, and it just works. I want to talk a bit more of the business, but, but to the culture for a second. What is, you came from Sling, prior to that you'd been at Dish, where you worked at, on Ford, Charlie Ergen, he's been on this stage, and that's a whole different kind of boss. Just really obvious question, what's the difference between the Pandora culture and the Condé Nast culture? You know, I'd say, you know, Pandora and Condé Nast are more similar than Dish and Sling TV are to either of those. And yeah, I worked for Charlie, probably the toughest, smartest guy I ever worked for. And it was great. I mean, I learned a lot. And uh, I appreciate it. I went there to build, you know, what ultimately became Sling TV, and it was a really fun thing to do. But, you know, I, I think Pandora and Condé Nast both really value creativity and creators. You know, within Pandora, we didn't have to think about producing the content, right? We license it from music industry. Condé Nast, we produce all of our own content. So one of the big changes is, you know, we have 1,800 people who are producing content as, you know, editors and journalists uh, around the globe. And so that's quite a significant change, but... The journalists are a pain in the ass, right? Some are. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was a freebie. <laughs> 
I think you got my answer. <laughs> uh, but I do have the sense that the Pandora employees probably had different expectations about their workplace and what they did than maybe a Condé Nast editor, or maybe they're maybe they're closer together than I think. Now you know there's there's by the way when you talk about Condé Nast, there really were two Condé Nasts, and they had very different cultures. The international business was one Condé Nast, and it really operated as a loose federation of independent companies around the world. So in each of these markets that we operate around the world, you know, the, there was a managing director and all, all of the infrastructure, and they made their own decisions and they were sort of managed by a monthly P&L. It was not an integrated business. And so we're integrating that and then integrating it into the U.S. And the U.S. had a very different culture, a more, I'd say, competitive and uh, uh, individualistic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. and. Um, and so we're making a lot of changes. You know, I'm, I uh, mentioned to you backstage, uh, you know, all of this has been announced, but we have um, quite a lot of executive changes that, that by the end of the year, and I finish the appointments, we'll have a 10-person executive team, seven of whom will be new in the last 12 months. And part of that is about effecting culture change. And just to be clear, like, is there a culture you want to move from to? Is there a thing that you want a Condé Nast employee to be thinking about or embracing that they weren't doing? You know, We're talking about structural stuff, but, no, but is there a mindset change that you want from the employees? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it, for the executive team, it starts with team, really. And that, that to me, I found in my career that I'm, you know, everybody has different styles. And so there's not, my, there's not one answer that's that like the right answer for everyone. But for me, for my style, I have to have a team. I have to have people who have each other's back and are willing to challenge each other, but in a, in a safe way. And that's something that we'll be creating with the executive team we have there. And then I have to get, we wanna have alignment with what the growth opportunities are within our business. And you know, like the comment I made about editorial where it was really treated like it's, a, it's you know, they're over here and you know, our video business is over here and you know, never the two shall meet. Um, no, that's, that needs to be much more aligned. And then within international in the US, you know, it's like, it's a, you know, what does it mean to be a global company for us? Let me ask about, I'm sorry. Answering questions like that are really cultural questions as much as they are organizational questions. Hey, this is Peter. I'm going to pause this conversation so we can hear from a sponsor. We'll be right back. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. And now back to a conversation from Code Media. Business strategy question. Um, everyone in publishing has now put up, up digital paywalls. Mm -hmm. Just about. We still have it at, at, at Recode, but you never know. Um, actually, I think it's always going to be free. But... Um, and initially, this was news when the New York Times put up a digital paywall, and I host a media podcast. People would come on to tell me about their paywall strategy. Now everyone essentially has one. You guys have them throughout your magazines. Mm -hmm. I understand why you want to ask consumers to, to pay for stuff they're, they're reading, enjoying, but the really obvious question is, aren't they being asked to pay for too much stuff, and aren't they going to stop paying for the new titles that are putting up paywalls? You know, I think consumers are going, will pay for the things that they value. And I think within our industry, we have a disproportionate number of the brands that consumers are willing to pay for. And so when we look at, you know, brands like The New Yorker or Wired 
or Vanity Fair. Each of them are growing their subscriptions. Each of them are ahead of budget on growing subscriptions this year. And I think we're, we're frankly just scratching the surface because you know, I talked about the, you know, the history of Condé Nast and I mentioned TechStack earlier. You know, if you looked at our TechStack, you would see really a print business embedded in the middle of our TechStack. And so re-architecting that is quite important because the way most consumers engage with us today is through digital. Or even if they want to order a print magazine, you know, we should be serving them digital content uh, immediately rather than telling them that they'll get their magazine in six weeks or whatever. But in, a lot of, in, the, in the olden days of magazine subscriptions, a lot of those subscriptions were deeply discounted. Even if you were paying, you were paying very little. It was an ad business with sort of circulation. Mm-hmm. And again, we're, we're spending most of the day yesterday talking about unbundling, rebundling, streaming wars, who's going to pay for all this content. So I'm not just deciding whether or not to pay for GQ or Wired and the New Yorker. I'm also thinking about Hulu and Disney Plus and Spotify. Um, they all have reasonable ass of me, but you add it up. And even though I'm going to pay what I want, pay for things I value, in the end I have a limited amount of money. So I'm wondering how you think about that wall. When does that wall hit a consumer? And then how do you convince them that it is worth paying for that? And do you think of different offers and bundles you can offer them? Yeah, I do believe that the unbundling, which you know, I've been part of, you know, when, I, when I launched Sling TV, that was really the reason we didn't put all the local channels in and all the regional sports networks and everything in Sling TV was specifically this reason, because we were trying to unbundle what was, had become too big a bundle. We saw growth in Netflix and we saw people buying digital antennas to get locals. And we said, let's build this service that fits like a puzzle piece in between a digital antenna and Netflix. And let consumers create their own bundles. And they'll add you know, Hulu or whatever other services they want. And, you know, and, and it grew pretty nicely from that. You know, as things continue to become unbundled, they'll reach a saturation point where each of the people running those businesses or the people that are responsible for acquiring subscribers, if it's a subscription supported, are gonna say it's getting too expensive to acquire subscribers. Now I need to think about new models, and those new models, I believe, are gonna to lead to rebundling. I do believe in that. So is there it's a like Condé Nast bundle you're gonna sell me? I, look, you know, because of the number of titles that we have and the ones that people are willing to pay for, there may be an opportunity for that. We haven't decided anything on that, but, but one of the things that you mentioned, you know, our focus of Condé Nast being advertisers, that is true. If you look at the history of Condé Nast, it was about editorial excellence and focus on advertisers. Those were the key pillars. There's a third pillar that we're adding now, which is consumers. And so we're going to be appointing you know, a, a, a CMO that is a very consumer marketing-oriented CMO uh, to really lead all of our direct consumer activities because we are finding consumers are willing to pay for interacting with our brands. But again, culturally, we need to move from we're focused on editorial excellence and advertisers to an equal focus on, on consumers. So there is a big magazine bundle out there now. It's Apple, Apple News Plus. Is it 10 or 15 bucks a month? I should know because I'm paying for it. It's $10. $10 a month and basically gives you every magazine in the world. It seem, I'm getting it. It seems like a good proposition for me. It seems like a not good proposition for you. The Apple pitch has been, we're going to sell hundreds of millions of subscriptions and don't worry that you're getting a slice, 50 cents on the dollar. We're going to sell lots of dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about that business? I think the jury's out. You know, I think that um, it has, you know, the, the paid side of it, it, you know, has had some adoption and, and Apple will, I think, continue to focus on that. Whether it's good for publishers like us or not is, is to be determined. Because there's an obvious- I didn't the deal, the deal yeah. was done before I joined. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about that. Yeah. So this is a deal you inherited. Yes. 
Do you have the option to get out of it, or are you locked in for a I won't, I won't talk about the terms of the deal, other than to say that we do have, uh, uh, over time, we have options. Are you seeing the effect? I mean, it's, there was a report out, I think, from CNBC last week that said they had 200,000 subs, or they, they started with 200,000 subs and have barely added any. I'm one of them. I, I don't subscribe to GQ and Wired, even though I read those things. And it's kind of hard to go and find the articles, but I'll do it if I want to. Are there many people like me who you can track who are hitting your paywall, going to Apple News Plus, reading it there, and not subscribing? No, we haven't seen that effect. Um, it, that, that, that will be a difficult effect to measure, but if you look at like the earlier comment I made, if you look at some of our uh, publications that, uh, I don't like the term paywall because it's not consumer friendly, but where there's a paid model around it, all right. they're all, frankly, outperforming. They're, they're ahead of budget on subscription. And so, so when you say the jury's out on Apple News Plus and you're not sure if you're going to renew, you're not worried, at least right now, about the cannibalization effect that I just described. There's like 10 of me out there. I, I worry about it, okay. but we have not seen anything to indicate that that's happening yet. But it's too early to tell. And look, uh, you know, I hope that Apple News Plus is wildly successful and becomes a great uh, distribution channel for us and that we can make a lot of money from it. I just think, I think it's too early to tell. Um, let's talk about TV. That was uh, two businesses ago for you, Sling. Yeah. Like you said, you launched Sling. It was this really interesting idea, 20 bucks a month. I sort of thought of it as ESPN on demand. You could get, it was the main attraction there. Mm-hmm. Um, took off pretty quickly. And I think most of the digital bundles, the growth now has really slowed. Although you're telling me Sling is still going up. Yeah, they just reported, I think, uh, last week or two, and they grew, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand subs in the quarter. But the new, new conventional wisdom is that cord cutting is going to continue to increase in these new digital bundles, Sling, YouTube TV, Hulu, are not going to take up that slack and it's going to go down. And like Michael Nathans was pointing out yesterday, they're raising prices, so it's even becoming less appealing. So as someone who's been in and out of the TV business, where do you think that goes? When we launched, Sling TV was the first of those services to launch, and we could have launched it you know, much earlier. I mean, I, I mentioned it was the reason I joined Charlie was to launch that, and uh, uh, it took us a long time to get the content rights. But the reason it took us so long is because we were unwilling to just recreate the big bundle. If we had been willing to take the, you know, the packages that Dish has on its satellite and just put them on the internet, we could probably could have launched you know, a year or two earlier than we Right, because it's the same business. They don't care whether that's satellite that's right. or that's Fios right. or... But, but, our, but our belief from the beginning was that if you do that, you just end up in the same place that the big pay TV bundles are, which is they're too expensive. And you've seen that now. You've seen that the latest uh, announcement on price increases. These bundles now are $55, yep. $60, something like that. So they're approaching the full pay TV bundle, whereas Sling did do a price increase, but the $20 package is now $25. And, you know, it's, uh, and there's, I, there's good margin in that business. And so there's actually more margin, I believe, in Sling's bundles than there are in those big bundles that are $55 because they throw everything in. Now, and again, in some cases, you've got like a Viacom to give you one channel because Viacom was yeah. in a weakened position. Do you think that other folks are going to follow Sling's lead and create these actually skinny bundles or... Is it just not something the networks are willing to do? I, don't, I think it would be very tough for someone to come in and do it now. Because they have gotten all the others to do the big bundles, I think it's very unlikely that the big channel owners are going to you know, hand out deals like they did when we did the original deals at Sling. So thematically, we keep talking about this idea of bundles and unbundling and asking consumers to pay, and you're asking consumers to pay, and the TV networks are asking the consumers to pay more and more and more. 
it just doesn't seem sustainable. And it seems no matter what industry you're in, and you can tell yourself that you've got the most loved content, and Fox will say they've got really important content, on and on and on. Everyone will say their brand is important. In the end, you are going to hit a wall, which is Americans have a limited amount of money um, to spend. Um, they might have less money to spend in the future. And this idea of asking them all to pay up is not going to work. I think that they're not, remember if your starting point on pay TV was the average household was paying $100 a month for pay TV and they were paying for broadband and they're paying for Netflix and all of that. There's actually a big pot that they were spending already. If you, take, if you take the music industry as an example, you know, in 1999, the music industry was bigger than it is today, the yep. recorded music industry. And you're seeing all the growth and everybody's talking about Spotify and the growth and you know, the labels are making all this money. It actually was a bigger industry in 1999 than it is today. Um, so consumer behavior has changed. They're not buying it, they're renting it, uh, content, but it's now feeding the ecosystem in a way that gives consumers much more of what they want. So the business models will change and it'll change how consumers pay for things. I think you know, when, when we launched Sling TV, the, you know, I would you'd ask the question, what do you think is going to happen to traditional bundles? I think there were about 100 million at the time. I, I said, I think in five years, there'll be 65 million, was my guess, and that there'll be tens of millions of these you know, smaller bundles uh, streaming services. So you think the American consumer is going to pay the same amount net that they've been paying for the last few years? They're just going to choose how to distribute I, I actually think they may pay more because they'll be able to buy what they want. And that's the big difference is is that you, you actually get, it's, it's one thing if you're paying $100 and you're, you're getting 500 channels and you watch seven of them, you feel like I'm being ripped off. Like, why am I paying for all these channels? But if I can actually pay for the things I want and consume more of what I want, you know, if you look, at, again, back to music, music consumption, even though the industry was bigger, music consumption is way, way bigger than it was in 1999. I think a lot about Hulu and the fact that they've got an ad-free option and most people, and it's, I think, $4 more. And so obviously anyone in this room is going to get that if they can. But they sell way more ad-supported subscriptions that are $4 cheaper. Part of it, I think, is the, we can ask Kevin Mayer about this. They haven't actually marketed the ad-free option that much. But a part of it is people want to save four bucks a month. And to me, that's a big flag saying, all of you guys who are asking me to pay for this and this and this are, are, are going to bump into reality. Sure. Not every brand is going to get people to pay for it. And so back to, to my business, Condé Nast, I think we have a disproportionate number of brands that people are willing to pay for. Okay, I have We're more seeing questions. that in, in the fact that you know, for our main titles where people subscribe, all of them are ahead of budget and, and, and growing subscribers this year. I have more questions, but I want to yeah. open it up to you guys. There's mics here. There is a mic upstairs for you guys who are lurking up there. Does anyone ask the CEO of Condé and ask a question? Maybe some of his employees. <laughs> hey, Roger. Callie from Women's Wear. Um, I have two questions, actually. One, it kind of sounds like the strategy around the paywalls maybe has changed. Are you still going to put every magazine behind a paywall as it was originally announced, or is it just a focus on the core kind of four properties that are already there? And also, how many magazines do you think Condé will publish in five years? First of all, just to level set, we have 38 brands today in 31 markets. They're not all magazines. Um, some are digital only. And some of the, you know, interesting, so if you take a couple of our digital only, like Self as an example, there, we do some publications on Self, but Self is a magazine that I think three years ago stopped the regular monthly publication, and the press that came out about that was, you know, gee, it's closing Self, and all. Self has been a phenomenal success for us. 
It makes more money today as a digital only than it did as a, as a print magazine, and the audiences have been growing very rapidly. That's an example of one that has made that transition very effectively, and we have others like Glamour that have, have done similar things. So there may be others that, uh, that make that transition at some point. Um, I think the core titles that we have, you know, Vogue and New Yorker and Vanity Fair and GQ and you know, Architectural Digest, Wired, these are titles that I, I can't imagine them not being in print. Uh, so, but you know, of all the 38 different brands that we have, there'll be a mix of ones that'll be in print and ones that'll uh, be uh, digital and video and other areas that we, that, we, uh, that we have them in. Sorry, what was the rest of your question? So more will go over the years though, basically, is what you're saying. Sorry? More magazines will go digital only over the years, pretty I, much. I don't know. I, I think that um, I think we have, we have a playbook that has shown how magazines can be successful yeah. as digital only. But I think it depends on the type of content uh, that, that exists for the, for the magazine. And um, so, I, I, you know, it's possible. But okay. uh, right now, I think we've got a pretty good balance. Okay. And then the other question was around the paywall strategy. If yes, still going to have all of them in front. Yeah. So, you know, I think getting consumers to pay for content, there's no single right answer. It's not you just put this paywall in front of all these consumers and, you know, for every title that you have. On, you know, if you think about the spectrum of titles that we have, on one extreme, maybe The New Yorker, you know, where the, the vast majority of the revenue for The New Yorker is subscription. Um, that's a natural title to promote that. Some of our other brands, like Them, which is an LBTQ, a, you know, a younger brand, uh, that would be a different strategy. You wouldn't just say you got to pay for that content. And so I think there's a whole spectrum uh, that, uh, that is different for each title. And by the way, it's not just title by title. It's actually, you need to think, think about consumer by consumer. Because if you're really you know, operating you know, as, as uh, state of the art, you really interact with consumers in a different ways. So we treat you differently than we treat Peter because of whatever data we have about you and may make a different offer to you versus what we would do for Peter. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Hi, Lori Keith from the Ad Council. How are you? Hi. Um, you talked a bit about video and how that seems to be a very big, you know, growth driver for you. How are you thinking about video in terms of, you know, production? Are you going to be producing for all of your titles, you know, distribution, um, in terms of advertising? You know, can mm -hmm. you talk a little about maybe a branded content studio? Just curious about that. Sure. Um, maybe what I should real quickly just explain what we do in video today. It's really in four areas. We have ad-supported video, which is on YouTube and our own sites and other sites that distribute. Uh, that's the largest and fastest growing uh, part of the business. We have branded content where we have studios all around the world. We produce content for our brand partners. We have long-form television where we have shows. I think we've sold eight or nine shows to Netflix and other uh, distributors uh, around the world. And then we have feature film business. And so within that, I think we're really just scratching the surface. Again, if you think about 38 brands in 31 markets, 1,800 people producing content, we're getting much more organized around how we take all of that IP and look for opportunities with it or start creating new IP around that. And so video, I think, remains one of the biggest opportunities for us across the whole spectrum. The different way people are discovering content these days is often through their social channels and recommendations. And I get, I see snippets of articles that I'm really fascinated by. I probably don't think there's enough in it to warrant a subscription. How are you managing getting people in with more than just the, you have three articles you can read this month and then you need to subscribe? Is there something, I'd happily pay a buck a time to read 30 or 40 
uh, articles across your spectrum of, of uh, titles? Yeah. Look, you know, I think if you look at one of the companies I think has done this really well is the New York Times. I think Mark was here. Was he? Did he yeah. speak? Yeah. Not, not today, but before not today. Yeah, yesterday. Um, and, and what they, the way I look at what they've done is two things broadly. They segmented the market and looked at what consumers are willing to pay for and in what format they're willing to pay for. And they innovated around new products that they, they could charge consumers for. And it's, it's worked quite well for them. I think we have a, a similar opportunity uh, times the number of brands that we have. Uh, but it does require us to have capabilities that are different from the capabilities we have had historically. And so there's a lot that we have to do on the technology side. There's a lot we have to do on the marketing side and building up some of these capabilities, which we're you know, hard at work doing, so that we can then start to innovate around the consumer offers that we do. But she's, you're talking about the product. She's talking about discovery and how you're going to find this. Well, I was talking about different payment models for content. And or can we innovate around? I, I, I view that question as, can we price discover and segment the market how consumers are willing to pay for our content? And for us to be able to do that effectively, we got to fix some things first. We got to build some capabilities that we don't have that we're, we're building in the process of building. And then that will enable us to start innovating around the different models that we engage consumers. But also, to, and that was my question, but also to the point about discovery, Anna Wintour tells some amazing stories about how you get so much more content out of one article now with little snippets that will guide people in. So it's interesting to hear about the, the social strategy of... Yeah, there are ways to create more hooks into the content, yes, right. Roger, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you very it. much.